Hello, everyone. It has been unforgivably long since the last time we put out content, and I can only partially blame that on the pandemic. I was approached about submitting a miniseries of 20-minute audio discourses titled Better Half concerning the First Ladies of the United States and have been consumed with research, writing, and working my actual job simultaneously. And because you are such loyal listeners, I thought I'd offer the entire series to you for free. This inaugural installment incorporates the first four lectures back-to-back-to-back-to-back, covering 1789 through 1865. You will hear this sound between each lesson to break them apart, providing an excellent place to pause. So, without further ado, part one of Better Half, presented by Scattered Curiosities. It even has its own different theme song. Welcome to Better Half, an introductory series surrounding the First Lady, a title not mentioned anywhere in the doctrines of the United States of America. Women traditionally get the shaft in history, so it isn't easy getting to know some of these earlier American queens, many of whom were thrust into their station without consent. Each episode will familiarize you with some first wives, daughters, and nieces on a basic level, starting with the first first lady of them all, Martha Dandridge Washington. Well, technically, for you see, the designation of first lady was not used during her lifetime and did not appear in print until 36 years after her death. Her honorific was Lady Washington. Martha grew up on a Virginia plantation as the eldest of eight kids to John Dandridge, account clerk, and Frances Jones, daughter to a member of Virginia's House of Burgess. I should say Colony of Virginia because as of 1731, there were no states in America. Martha was not formally educated, but received instruction in stitchery, religion, reading, writing, and running a large farm household, which proved vital to her future. At age 19, Martha married Daniel Park Custis, a man twice her age, and they lived on what was serendipitously named the White House Plantation. The Custises had four children. Only two survived childhood. Widowed at age 26 by Daniel's sudden death, Martha took over operations, negotiated culmination for her tobacco, and managed nearly 300 people in bondage, which attracted aspiring suitors to the rich single beauty in an era where women really couldn't own land unless their husbands died. Of all the beaux seeking her affections, Martha accepted Mr. George Washington's proposal, not a general yet, who was one year younger than her, scandalous. For their spring ceremony, she wore silken shoes of purple. I mention this because, as you will discover through these lectures, fashion is a crucial thread, no pun intended, that links all first ladies to one another. 
The slippers remain on display at Mount Vernon. Martha went on campaign with George during the Revolutionary War, losing her son John to Camp Fever, typhus, at Yorktown's encirclement. Many deputy wives toured with the army, which inspired the troops. Dug into the Valley Forge camp for the better part of a year, morale was kept up with afternoon tea and singing, but no playing cards, as Washington did not allow games of chance. So, the staff officers staged plays. His favorite? Joseph Addison's Cato. Martha was an ever-supportive ally through the decade-long rebellion, so it's fitting that the first U.S. military vessel to be named for a woman be the 1776 USS Lady Washington. It is doubly unique that the honored person was alive at the time of the christening. Subsequently, there was a USS Martha Washington in World War I. Upon America's victory over the Redcoats, Martha was uneasy about George being tabbed as the first president, while also understanding that he was the obvious choice. As heads of a new nation without a permanent capital, they moved between New York City and Philadelphia, where Martha entertained the Republican court. Despite any cherry-tree-chopping-children stories you may have heard about Honest George Washington, he and Martha were a bit shady when it came to skirting slave laws in Philly, where there was a mandate non-residents could only bring vassals along for six months. After that time, they had impunity, a process called manumission. These slaves were bound to the Custis Holdings, to which Martha and George were only privy to the dower share of. If liberated... Washington would have to reimburse the estate for the loss. So, the president utilized their servitude just long enough before rotating them out with others from Mount Vernon. One of Martha's maids, Oni Judge, flew the coop during the second term. According to Oni, Martha had treated her well, she just didn't want to be a slave anymore. George's chef Hercules also escaped presidential clutches. Following his departure speech in 1797, the Washingtons intended to enjoy retirement, particularly their whiskey distillery, but the couple was woefully house poor. George willed their captives to be released when the two reached their expiration date. He spoiled first after coming down with likely pneumonia and treated by doctors who bled George Washington to death, nearly five pints. Martha promptly destroyed all but five of the letters between them to preserve privacy, wore black for a year, and immediately felt threatened for her life because so much opportunity was to be gained by her demise. So once George was gone... Martha discharged his slaves and willed the rest to her grandchildren. Martha Washington died a few years later at age 71. And as of this recording, she is the only woman to have appeared solely on any U.S. banknote, the 1886 and 1891 dollar certificates. We know more about Martha's successor, Abigail Smith Adams, thanks to the over 1,200 personal letters that survive her. 
Abigail descended from a distinguished political brood. Her first cousin once removed was married to John Hancock. Her studies refinement was similar to Martha's, but access to a vast library opened up a whole new world to Abby's extraordinary mind. At age 15, Abigail met 24-year-old John Adams for the first time. Not like that. He was doing business with her father. They married five years later when Abby was the more appropriate age of 20. Her mom wasn't thrilled about having a brash rural lawyer as a son-in-law, but he proved himself worthy when they relocated to Boston so he could practice law. The Adams family germinated to include five children, with a six that was lost in infancy. Their eldest boy, John Quincy, provided Abigail the qualifications to be the first of only two American women to have been wife of one president and mother to another. Barbara Bush is the second. Abigail was not only in charge of the household, but their finances as well. Obviously, John was essential in declaring independence from Great Britain, and were this a series about presidents, we'd go into great detail about that right now. Suffice it to say, John had a confidant in Abigail and considered her point of view. Abby wanted property rights and edification for women and went so far as to write the Continental Congress in 1776, saying, quote, Remember the ladies and be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors. Do not put such unlimited power into the hands of the husbands. Remember, all men would be tyrants if they could. If particular care and attention is not paid to the ladies, we are determined to foment a rebellion and will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation. End quote. Nevertheless, the colonies were long away from winning the war waged. In the meantime, John was garrisoned overseas in Paris alongside the wildly popular consul, Benjamin Franklin. John and Abigail had by now spent much of their marriage apart from one another, so she bravely took the sea voyage along with their daughter, Nabby, to join him. Thomas Jefferson had also brought his daughters overseas, and Abigail would babysit his youngest, Polly, while he was on diplomatic business. It took some getting used to, but Mrs. Adams soon flourished in French culture, making friends, discovering opera, and being awed by the fadism, remarking that she'd, quote, never be in the mode, end quote. But then, to Abigail's dismay, John got transferred to London. She preferred French living and, frankly, fit in there more than he did. But then that ambassadorship ended in 1778 and the pair returned to the old house in Massachusetts before learning that John had scored the second most votes for the newly created office of President of the United States, which, at the time meant he was the vice president. No running mates yet. That comes later in the political circus of America. 
Abigail scorned human subjugation and those who, quote, deprive their fellow creatures of freedom, end quote, and stood by that viewpoint as Second Lady of the United States after providing classes to a black boy yearning for erudition. She defended the young man as, quote, a free man as much as any of the young men, and merely because his face is black, is he to be denied instruction? How is he to be qualified to procure a livelihood? I have not thought it any disgrace to myself to take him into my parlor and teach him both to read and to write, end quote. When Washington refused a third term, John Adams was selected to carry the torch, having nearly been edged out by longtime friend Thomas Jefferson, who was now his vice president. The two drifted politically within Adams' administration. Abigail was unable to attend the inauguration because her mother was at death's door, but eventually came to the temporary capital of Philadelphia to comply with the commitments expected of her, including weekly banquets and Fourth of July celebrations. Her intellect, advice, and penchant for politics earned her the nickname Mrs. President, who was a liaison, promoter, and defender of John's leadership, including the controversial Alien and Sedition Acts, which former President Washington fully supported. Finally, in 1800, Abigail Adams is the first First Lady to live at the President's House in the very swampy Washington, D.C. After losing re-election to Thomas Jefferson, the men grew estranged for over a decade. But such bitterness could not stop Abigail from sending Thomas condolences after his daughter Polly died while giving birth in 1804. Abby lived just long enough to see John Quincy ascend to Secretary of State when typhoid claimed her at age 73. Her final words, quote, Do not grieve, my friend, my dearest friend. I am ready to go. And John, it will not be long. End quote. Our next First Lady, Martha Randolph, bears some explaining. She was Thomas Jefferson's oldest daughter out of six kids who fulfilled the role her mother, Martha Wales Skelton Jefferson, would have played had she not died when the girl was 10 years old. Because they were both named Martha, I will refer to the daughter by her nickname, Patsy. As governor of Virginia, Mr. Jefferson did not support public schooling for girls but invested heavily to enlighten his daughters, first at Monticello with tutors and later at a Parisian convent where Patsy absorbed fluency in four languages amid his tenure as U.S. Minister to France. After five years, Patsy declared her desire to convert to Catholicism, and Thomas hastily unenrolled her and little Polly from the institution. Patsy was aware of the disparities brought about by Helletry, noting the convention did not exist in France. Quote, I wish with all my soul that all the poor Negroes were all freed. End quote. Having received exemplary training in history, math, geography, and music, Patsy was also coached to be a lady, a wife, 
and rear children, and got right to it after returning home from Europe. Her father was delighted at her betrothal to Thomas Randolph Jr., a third cousin of Pocahontas, who would himself come to be governor of Virginia one day, making Patsy first lady of that state after having been acting first lady of the nation. Thomas Jefferson bestowed them eight African-American lives as a wedding gift, and they lived on a plantation near Monticello, overseeing both properties while her father was away. Juggling the lives of 11 children equipped Patsy to help President Dad with scheduling and hosting festivities. Quote, Whenever she was in the Capitol, Mrs. Randolph became the head of whatever occasion she attended. No matter what the social skirmish, no one disputed her right of precedence. End quote. It was a family affair. Her dad was the president, her husband sworn into Congress, and Sister Polly was also groomed to be a White House presenter until her untimely death. Secretary of State James Madison offered up his wife Dolly's talents when the Jefferson girls were unavailable. After the White House, Patsy feared destitution crashing down on them if her husband was conscripted for war in 1812. So she persuaded President Monroe to appoint Thomas a cushy tax collector position, which culminated into that governorship seven years later. But it was not enough to save a marriage plagued by mental illness and addiction. Having been nearby for so many significant parts of Jefferson's career, Patsy and a staff made up of her children organized the papers meant for his biography in his final years. With such privileged access, they attempted to erase any claims that the former president fathered bastard children with his concubine, Sally Hemming. When Thomas Jefferson died, exactly 50 years to the date after signing the Declaration of Independence, Patsy got the keys to Monticello and all the bills that came along with it, putting her in a morally delicate dilemma where instead of allowing her indentured people self-determination, she sold most of them to pay debts, giving few exemptions. Patsy promptly put Monticello up, but it remained unsold for five years, ultimately bought at one-tenth its worth. In our next lesson, we'll meet the first cousin of FDR's grandmother who was personally invited to the coronation of Napoleon Bonaparte, a first lady so famous that we debate the proper spelling of her name to this day, a string of tabloid-worthy first daughters, and we'll dive into the ignominious petticoat affair, where the mean girls of the Washington elite cause an uproar in the president's cabinet. The last installment of Better Half ended with the Jefferson girls acting as White House hostesses alongside the borrowed wife of Secretary of State, Dolly, that's D-O-L-L-E-Y, Payne Madison. Born into a bi-Quaker household, Mom Mary was, Dad John wasn't, but converted, Dolly was raised on a Virginia plantation travailed by suppressed individuals. Yet after the American Revolution, her father freed his slaves, 
as did many Quakers. Loss of such labor meant he needed a new career path, and he unsuccessfully attempted to shine as a starch salesman in Philadelphia. Poor John Payne was ousted from the tribe as a failure and died the following year, leaving the family to pick up the pieces by operating a lodging business, which proved to be far too daunting for Dolly's widowed mother. Luckily, one of her grown sisters, Lucy, was wife to George Washington's nephew and had room enough to shelter them. At age 20, Dolly married Quaker lawyer John Todd, with whom she had two boys. When yellow fever ravished Philadelphia, it took out him, his parents, and one of her sons. Though Dolly had been willed money, John's brother was the executor of the estate and refused her, forcing Dolly to see him in court. As an available socialite, Dolly became acquainted with 43-year-old James Madison by way of his college chum and future dueling vice president, Aaron Burr. I'm sure you can imagine the kind of gossip running through the nation's capital when the esteemed Virginia congressman hooked up with a single mother nearly half his age. Eight years in Congress was enough for James, who desired retirement at Montpelier, but he answered when called to duty as Thomas Jefferson's Secretary of State. Plunged into D.C.'s popular crowd, Dolly thrived impressing visiting diplomats while juggling the two roles of Secretary of State's wife and stand-in First Lady when Jefferson's daughters were unavailable. After having a dry run, Dolly was ready to pioneer many of the traits we have come to expect in a First Lady. She decorated the drab president's home, and her inclination to open the space to others only made her more beloved by the public, earning her an honorary seat in Congress. Dolly gets ample credit for introducing bipartisan politics before it was even a word, bringing both sides of the table to her events, preventing politicians' seclusion to one's own party. And while most don't recognize her as the first person in America to reply to a telegraph, Everyone seems familiar with her saving relics from the White House when the British lit it up. The legend puts Dolly Madison on the scene, rescuing George Washington's portrait before fleeing the burning home. While technically accurate, a White House slave named Paul Jennings was the man she instructed to retrieve it. Here is an account of the circumstance from a letter she wrote. Quote, I insist on waiting until the large picture of General Washington is secured, and it requires to be unscrewed from the wall. The process was found too tedious for these perilous moments. I have ordered the frame to be broken and the canvas taken out. It is done, and the precious portrait placed in the hands of two gentlemen from New York for safekeeping. End quote. By 1817, the party was over and it was back to Montpelier for another two decades before James died. Dolly gathered all of his papers to publish a seven-volume series, for which Congress allocated $55,000. Still, Montpelier was in arrears, 
forcing the cash-strapped Dolly to sell the residence and Paul Jennings, whose fate was a little brightened when his new master, Daniel Webster, allowed Paul to buy his autonomy with sweat. At age 76, Dolly accompanied President Tyler on the USS Princeton when a cannon nicknamed the Peacemaker exploded, killing the Secretary of State and Navy, but sparing the President and the former First Lady. She died five years later. Whoever followed the doll would have some big shoes to fill, and that albatross flew to Elizabeth Courtright. Raised on the slave-worked land that became Courtright, New York, her dad was on the ground level of the New York Chamber of Commerce. At age nine, Elizabeth's mother died from childbed, and the rest of her family was nearly lost when their Manhattan home burned down. Fortunately, everyone got out. She and her older siblings were schooled and culturally preened. When a teenage Elizabeth attended the theater in 1785, it was said that she, quote, made so brilliant and lovely an appearance as to depopulate all the other boxes of all the genteel male people therein, end quote. A fact particularly noted by Continental Congressman James Monroe. They wed the following year and soon had their first child, Eliza. George Washington named James Minister to France amid the guillotine-hungry reign of terror. As the ambassador's wife, Elizabeth managed to broker the safe release of Thomas Paine, who was jailed for treason, and Madame Lafayette, who was in danger of execution. It probably didn't hurt that little Eliza had a strong friendship with her schoolmate and Napoleon's stepdaughter, Hortense. As a Jeffersonian Republican, James was an ally to the French and openly denied the Federalist Jay Treaty between the U.S. and Great Britain, which got his envoy recalled. Back in the States, James kept the bureaucratic wheels turning, and it wouldn't be long before Elizabeth was named First Lady of Virginia, marking a descent in her health suffering what some historians believe to be epilepsy, which made her self-conscious of social gatherings. In 1803, Thomas Jefferson asked the couple to go back overseas as minister to Great Britain. Much like Abigail Adams in the same predicament years earlier, Elizabeth preferred a French lifestyle over an English one. And let's face it, Britain was not thrilled to accommodate the French-loving twosome who were personally invited to Napoleon Bonaparte's coronation. In fact, while emissary to the UK, James was helping secure terms for the Louisiana Purchase with France. The Monroe's second return to the US was the same as the first. James was hailed governor of Virginia, only to be hastily summoned by a chief executive for reassignment this time as Secretary of State, plus Secretary of War until the disastrous stalemate of 1812 skirmish with Britain could be resolved. Next step, the presidency. By this time, Elizabeth was overwhelmed and handed over heaps of First Lady obligations 
to the now-grown-and-married Eliza Monroe Hay. The White House was being restored, so business was conducted out of their I Street residence in Washington, D.C. With a breath of artifacts having been destroyed in the fire, many of the furnishings were Monroe's personal effects. Elizabeth's feelings towards the presidential mansion countered those of her predecessor. She wanted access to the White House to be more restrictive and privileged, in step with Parisian savoir-faire. The public saw this as being rather arrogant after Dolly Madison had been so inviting. General Andrew Jackson approved of the exclusivity, was endeared by Elizabeth, and always asked about her well-being. Executive Entertaining had accrued massive debt for the Monroes, forcing their homestead sale. Elizabeth died in 1830 and James shortly after that, making way for the first foreign-born First Lady, Louisa Catherine Johnson, a bastard baby of London. Raised apace with seven siblings, Louisa was exposed to state affairs via her father Joshua, who worked in the U.S. consulate, and uncle, who ascended to a Supreme Court justice. Louisa met John Quincy Adams when he was conducting business at their house with intent to court one of her sisters. Consequently, Louisa wed him two years later. John brought Louisa and in-laws to live in Massachusetts when her dad abruptly went bankrupt. Luckily, John's father was leader of the nation and appointed Joshua U.S. Director of Stamps. Like her mother-in-law Abigail and Elizabeth Monroe, Louisa was bored with America after having experienced life in London and Paris and referred to the Adams farmhouse as, quote, like something out of Noah's Ark, end quote. Though she revered Mrs. Adams as, quote, the guiding planet round which we all revolved, end quote. When John Quincy became Secretary of State, Louisa threw artsy DC parties in the drawing room to great acclaim. However, she mostly savored alone time spent writing poetry, music, reading, and, oh yeah, playing the harp. Louisa had suffered headaches and fainting spells throughout her life, was 50 years old when they moved into the White House, and had completely lost the spark to beguile, becoming depressed and growing distant from her family. After John's obligatory re-election loss, like his father before him, Louisa was excited to get away from Washington, D.C., but denied that dream by her now congressman husband, who kept them there an additional 17 years before having a cerebral hemorrhage on the Senate floor. When Louisa died four years later, both houses of Congress adjourned to pay her homage. Now, if you think politics are cutthroat and nasty today, in 1828, it was personal. Case in point, Rachel Donaldson married Andrew Jackson after filing divorce papers from her first husband, but apparently the process was never finalized. Nobody knew or contested it for 34 years until dirt diggers working for the incumbent John Quincy Adams brought the issue to light and slammed Rachel as an adulteress. 
This enraged Andrew, who blamed the stress and humiliation from the attack for her death months later. Nevertheless, he won, moved into the White House as a widower, and invited Rachel's niece, Emily Tennessee Donaldson, to be one of his acting first ladies. Emily grew up on a farm, but was given an exemplary education at the Nashville Female Academy. At age 17, she married her first cousin with the same last name, Andrew Jackson Donaldson, or AJ, and the dyad assisted her ailing Aunt Rachel with chores at the Hermitage Plantation. By the time Uncle Andrew was in office, Emily was well-groomed to manage his interests while AJ served as his private assistant. As First Lady, she relieved the official state of mourning from Rachel Jackson's death with an elegant New Year's party, endearing Emily to the mean girls clique of the Washington elite. And the gossip they feasted upon is known as the Petticoat Affair, a tempest of conjured rumors suggesting that the Secretary of War, John Henry Eaton, had an affair with a married woman, Peggy, now his wife, leading her former husband to commit suicide even though the autopsy cataloged death by pneumonia. The supposed scandal ran rampant through the grapevine, causing Vice President John C. Calhoun's wife, Fluoride, to ostracize the Eatons outright. Andrew Jackson was sympathetic towards Peggy and adamant that his cabinet fall in line. Some did, but even his niece was a plastic by now and did the bare minimum to be cordial to the point that the Eatons refused dinner invitations because of Emily's crummy attitude. Jackson discharged her from the cachet and ordered her back to managing the Hermitage house, but she refused and stayed with her mother while A.J. endured in the White House trying to persuade his wife to make amends. But Emily was unmoved and her burdens went to Andrew's daughter-in-law, Sarah York Jackson. Emily died at age 29 from tuberculosis. Sarah was a spouse to the president's adopted son, Andrew Jackson Jr., a couple so magisterial they honeymooned at the White House and settled in Tennessee until a major fire at the Hermitage displaced the lovebirds and their children to Washington. There was a slight overlap of time where both Sarah and Emily were moderating events at the White House, so Jackson was careful to address Sarah as Mistress of the Hermitage instead of White House Hostess to prevent discord between the women. It was also a fitting title as Sarah was supervising the rental job needed at the Hermitage, striving to retain and repair it. Sarah grew up in Philadelphia as the well-heeled daughter of a sea captain. By age 17, both of her parents had died when she and her sisters were taken in by two of their aunts. Sarah met and married Andrew Jackson Jr. 11 years later. Antecedent to her year in the White House, Sarah was reassigned to the Hermitage House, but blundered to keep the estate in the black after Jackson died eventually selling the property to the state of Tennessee. The couple returned three years later as tenants 
when the Hermitage sales finances were lost to a string of bad investments. She remained on the plantation for another three decades. Bringing us to Sarah Angelica Singleton, who grew up with five siblings and studied at both the Columbia Female Academy of South Carolina and Philadelphia's Madame Grulaud's French School. While on a trip to Washington, Sarah's first cousin once removed, Dolly Madison, was determined to bracket the girl with Martin Van Buren's eldest son and military man, Abraham. At age 20, Sarah began performing first lady duties for her father-in-law, making her the youngest woman to do so. Sarah and Abraham toured Europe and the UK, were inspired by the culture of literally placing prominent females on a platform, and brought the praxis to the Blue Room for White House ceremonies. Sarah's time in D.C. was short after Van Buren floundered his re-election. So, she and Abraham built a family, settling in New York City for the rest of their lives. In our next episode of Better Half, we'll meet the only first lady to be wife to one president and grandmother to another, drinking and dancing will get banned at the White House, and the Rose of Long Island brings glamour back to Pennsylvania Avenue. Last time, we left off with our youngest first lady, Sarah Angelica Van Buren, vacating the presidential mansion subsequent to working within her father-in-law's administration. Although Sarah's tenure was abrupt, it was a lifetime compared to the month-long blip for the oldest woman ever to hold the title, Anna Tuthill Sims who was literally packing bags for D.C. when learning her newly elected husband, William Henry Harrison, had given up the ghost before she even stepped foot inside the White House. Anna was old school, being the last first lady to have been born in one of the 13 original colonies. Her dad was Chief Justice of the Supreme Court in New Jersey, But amid the horrors of the Revolutionary War, he posed as a British fighter to smuggle Anna to grandparents in Long Island to be raised. After attending schools in New York City and the Hamptons, the family moved to Ohio. And while visiting Kin in Lexington, Kentucky, about 100 miles away, 19-year-old Anna met Lieutenant Harrison and began dating him. Much to the chagrin of Judge Sims, who disapproved of the pairing to the point that Anna and William chose to elope. Judge Sims was livid and told William as such, demanding to know how a lieutenant was to provide for his daughter, prompting William's heroic response, quote, By my sword and my own right arm, sir, end quote. Mr. Sims would eventually come around when William made a name for himself as a general, a representative of the Ohio Territory, and then governor of the Indiana Territory, heretofore settling on their Grouseland plantation. Anna and William sired ten kids, trickling down to forty grandchildren. So, you know, statistically, one of them was bound to be president someday— grandson Benjamin Harrison. While Anna wouldn't survive long enough to see that, 
she did outlive all but one of her children. William was 67 when he won the presidency for the Whig Party, and Anna, two years younger, was ill-prepared to fill a position held by such young ladies as of late, remarking, quote, I wish that my husband's friend had left him where he is, happy and contented in retirement, end quote. She was sick on Inauguration Day and sent a proxy, daughter-in-law Jane, until well enough to travel. If only her husband had such good health sense. It was cold and rainy that day, but William unwisely eluded a carriage ride, hat, and overcoat, opting to gallantly arrive on horseback, aligning with his victorious, self-serving campaign slogan, Tippecanoe and Tyler too, and proceeded to give a two-hour speech. He was the first president to die in office. As a widow, Anna went to live with her son, John Scott, and helped raise her future president grandson, Benjamin. When Vice President John Tyler took over for the fallen leader, he signed a president's widow pension bill, awarding Anna $25,000. Little did he know, he too would soon join the Widower's Club, postliminary to the death of his wife Letitia, making her the first of three first ladies to die in the White House. Having been a somewhat timid woman, Letitia Christian and John Tyler dated for five years, and throughout that stretch, he had only ever kissed her on the hand, three weeks ahead of the wedding. Outrageous! Only one of their love notes is known to exist. It reads, quote, Whether I float or sink in a stream of fortune, you may be assured of this, that I shall never cease to love you. End quote. They were married on John's birthday. Now, President Harrison's sudden death found Letitia in no condition to take control of first lady jobs thanks to a paralytic stroke two years prior. Therefore, she made just one major public appearance at the White House for the wedding of their daughter Elizabeth before another stroke finished her off. Their son Robert was employed as the president's assistant and his starlet wife, Priscilla, postulated as White House hostess. Priscilla Cooper was a typical stage brat, daughter to a producer-slash-thespian, she took the stage at age 17 to build a Broadway career until the Panic of 1837 brought the Coopers to near starvation. Robert Tyler first saw Priscilla parading as Desdemona in a production of Othello. Since he was the son of a wealthy former senator, the thought of him coupling with an actress seemed vulgar to American aristocracy at the time. Regardless, the star-crossed lovers got married and moved on to a plantation. It is important to note that there were no provisions in the Constitution addressing succession in the event of a president dying in office, and there wouldn't be, officially, until 1947. So John Tyler was emboldened when he assumed that the position was automatically his and took it and pampered his daughter-in-law Priscilla to the point that he gave her carte blanche to spend money in any store in Williamsburg, Virginia. 
Because Priscilla and Robert had a home in Philadelphia, she shared White House obligations with her own daughter, Letitia Tyler Semple, until President Tyler took a new wife. In response to the first shots of the Civil War, Robert and Priscilla tarnished the family name by siding with the Confederacy and leaving the North to serve rebel forces. Yet even the lost cause was not enough to keep a tenacious Robert from rebuilding his portfolio as a lawyer and heading the Virginia Democratic Party antecedent to the war. Backtracking just a bit, when John Tyler married his second wife, Julia Gardner, he only had one year left in his term, so she never really got that big moment to shine in the role, but was no stranger to the court of public opinion. Julia was born on a private island in New York called Gardner's Island. Her father was a state senator. At age 19, Julia was vilified as the Rose of Long Island when she was seen escorted by an unknown man, causing Senator Dad to whisk Julia away to Europe to evade any tabloid scuttlebutt. A couple years later, Julia found herself at a masquerade ball in Washington, D.C. and face-to-face with President Tyler who hastily asserted his intentions. Julia was less than enthused to be the prize of a man three decades her senior, even if he was the president, and she disliked the many ways that he attempted to propose. I mean, his firstborn child was five years older than her. But because they were spotted in each other's company, rumors flew. She and her family were invited to accompany John on the Princeton, a newly constructed steam frigate, when its naval gun, ironically named the Peacemaker, exploded, killing Julia's father. You may remember from our last episode that former First Lady Dolly Madison was a guest of honor at this event. John and Julia were unharmed, and his unwavering support through her mourning only brought them closer together making Julia the first woman to marry a president already in office. She seemed so full of life next to the old fellow, and that vibrance carried over into a brief time as first lady. Noticing that the song Hail to the Chief was often played whenever the president was around, Julia declared that it should always be used when he entered a room a practice successor Sarah Polk would continue, and a tradition that has been kept ever since. Following the presidency, the couple retired to their Virginia estate, Sherwood Forest, in expectation of the Civil War. This was interesting, as Julia was a northerner who was now mistress of a plantation and thusly came to defend the institution of slavery. John died in 1862 as the war pressed on, and Julia was displaced from Sherwood Forest. She fled to Staten Island and almost caused the family home to be burned to the ground when she hoisted a Confederate flag. Julia's brother sued to remove her from their mother's will. Growing more and more destitute, Julia petitioned Congress for financial help 
via a monthly stipend, but was forced to settle for a $5,000 annual pension for president widows that Congress allocated in the aftermath of President Garfield's assassination some 20 years later. Julia Tyler met her demise at age 68 in the exact location as John and of the same thing, the Exchange Hotel in Richmond of a stroke. Wealthy, pretty, ambitious, and intelligent was the endorsement Andrew Jackson gave Sarah Childress when he prodded James K. Polk to pursue her. Sarah was brought up with a well-rounded education and met James at their mutual tutor's home, but they didn't have a romantic rapport until their studies had concluded years later. James was sterile because of a bladder stone surgery, making the Polks the first presidential twosome to have no biological, adopted, or step children. Sarah was quite active in James's interval of legislature, writing speeches, weighing in on policy, and stumping for her man. She loved being part of DC's smart set and rubbed elbows with everybody including those who shunned Peggy Eaton throughout the aforementioned petticoat affair. Sarah offered counsel to James, who would get super stressed out about the formidable seat that he commanded. She was very religious and didn't allow dancing or liquor or even games at the White House, which was a staunch 180 from Julia Tyler's waltz parties. The first lady was disparaged as Sahara Sarah, you know, because she was dry. Yet some accounts have come from papers and diaries that suggest that champagne was sometimes served at particular events that called for it. James was not long for the world away from his cycle in Washington, and Sarah would slowly grow weary and unstable for the next 40 years. After he died, she took in her great-niece to raise as her own. The Polk plantation needed to be sold amid the Civil War to make ends meet, until Sarah, too, received the same congressional pension that Priscilla Tyler had lobbied for. Though Sarah's wartime stance was neutral, recognizing the importance of saving the Union. Nevertheless, Sarah was from the South and leaned towards their sympathies. She wore black for the rest of her life. Remarkably, no authenticated images of the next First Lady are known to exist, so we only have descriptions of Margaret McCall as chubby and matronly. Raised in Maryland as the daughter of a prosperous farmer and veteran of the American Revolution, Margaret met Lieutenant Zachary Taylor while dropping in on her sister in Kentucky and hurriedly married at age 20. She worried for her military man and went beyond praying to try to cut deals with God, bartering Zachary's safety in the Mexican-American War for the sacrifice of convivial joys. When Zach came back from attack as a major general and got into government, Margaret switched her heavenly messages and prayed for his failure to avoid the political savagery of Washington, D.C. As he sought the highest post in the land for the Whig Party, 
he travailed the nation to scoop up votes, including making funeral rounds. During the eulogy given at Dolly Madison's service, Zachary Taylor formulated the perfect words to describe her. First Lady. Decades of trailing Zach on military offenses wore on Margaret, who was too weak and sickly to take on the hosting duties and bequeathed it to their daughter, Mary Elizabeth, or Betty, who had also been along for the ride, moving in accordance to wherever Daddy happened to be stationed in the army, be it the Black Hawk or Second Seminole War. Betty married William Wallace Smith Bliss, an old army buddy of Zachary Taylor's, who delegated his new son-in-law as a personal assistant. With a fitting name, Miss Bliss tended to the social demands of the First Lady that Margaret took no interest in. Betty was a competent liaison, enjoyed the spotlight, and was reportedly dazzling at the inaugural ball, wearing a white dress and a white flower in her hair tragic that they'd have so little time in the White House when Zack breathed his last just a year into his reign. Mother Margaret plunged shortly after that, and finally William Bliss of Yellow Fever. At age 29, Betty Bliss was a widow and remained so until marrying Philip Pendleton Dandridge eight years later. Next time, a library is brought to the White House at the request of a First Lady, along with guest appearances by Washington Irving and Charles Dickens. We'll meet America's first and only bachelor president, a chief executive who is hot for teacher, and which First Lady shares a theme song with Heckle and Jekyll. Our last session concluded with Betty Bliss as the First Lady, a new term her father, Zachary Taylor, had coined in reverence of the recently departed Dolly Madison, not knowing he'd be seeing her real soon. Death's Move on the Chessboard was a promotion for then-time Second Lady Abigail Fillmore to primetime. Abigail didn't really know her father, whose life was relinquished in her infancy, so her mother strived to enrich Abby's mind through the vast library they possessed. With a gift for giving lessons, including piano, to herself, Abby was born to enlighten. In a love story worthy of Van Halen, she found herself instructing eventual husband Millard with his studies, who was two years her junior and hot for teacher, though they wouldn't wed for another six years. The twosome built a family and a library of their own together in Buffalo, New York, while Millard glad-handed as a congressman. But politics could not keep her from the schoolhouse. As second lady of the United States, Abigail was determined to continue her life's work in the classroom and was unchanged when advanced to First Lady, setting a precedent for other working First Wives. Washington, D.C. was in an official state of mourning over President Taylor's death, so hosting any galas seemed unbefitting. It was just as well as the Fillmores were not much for razzmatazz. 
Though Abby did have her piano brought to the White House and entertain literary masters the likes of Washington Irving and Charles Dickens. She felt embarrassed upon discovering that the White House had no library within it and saw that Congress donated two grand to get one going. Abigail had a bum ankle that prohibited her from standing for too long, so she relied heavily on the assistance of her daughter Mary for non-sitting engagements. But Abigail was still quite active in a chair. Millard always at least considered Abby's wisdom, but when she advised him against signing the Fugitive Slave Act, citing that it would lose him re-election, he did it anyway, and lost. Which was fine with Abby, who was happy to move on from the political arena and tour Europe with Millard. However, at the chilly inauguration for the incoming Franklin Pierce, she became ill, dying of pneumonia less than a month after vacating the White House giving Abigail Fillmore the shortest post office lifespan of any first lady. Jane Means Appleton was from a brood of six kids to a Congregationalist pastor who was also president of Bowdoin College. He died when she was a teen, but Jane carried his legacy by becoming enraptured in books, religion, and developing a contempt for alcohol. Physically, she endured bouts of depression, was a long hauler from tuberculosis, and appeared sickly much of the time. Jane's family did not approve of her conjoining with politician Franklin Pierce, despite his alma mater of Bowdoin College. But Jane was no pushover. She shared her family's distaste for statecraft, was not enthralled with life in Washington, D.C., and would make a point to remind Franklin of it as he bounced from congressman to senator. After a dozen unrelenting years, Jane finally convinced Frank to leave the Senate so they could return to New Hampshire. And he obediently stayed out of government for a decade. But in the aftermath of the Mexican-American War, in which Franklin served as a brigadier general, caused James K. Polk to come knocking on Pierce's door, hoping Franklin would be his attorney general. But Jane said no. So, Franklin said no. Along with offers of another Senate seat and governorship of New Hampshire, Jane says no. She quite literally blacked out in 1852 when news arrived that Franklin had been the Democratic Party's presidential nominee, and he was only permitted to accept it when Jane realized how the country could be steered with him at the helm. Tragically, their youngest son Benny perished in a train wreck before Franklin had taken the oath of office, and Jane viewed it as a punishment from God. She did not go to the inauguration. The once happy union became frigid ever after as Jane secluded herself upstairs writing letters to their deceased son. The role of first lady was shared by Jane's Aunt Abby and Jefferson Davis's wife, Verena. Jane did not make a bona fide appearance as first lady until New Year's Day, two years into the term and only a few sporadic occasions thereafter. Jane Pierce lost her struggle with tuberculosis at age 57. 
By this point in our chronology, we are at president number 15 and have had 10 acting non-wife first ladies. And Harriet Rebecca Lane Johnston turns it up to 11 with service to her bachelor uncle, James Buchanan. Harriet, or Hal, had a peculiar feature that recurs in description of her, in that her eyes appeared to be violet in color. Orphaned at age 11, Harriet wanted Senator Uncle James to become her guardian. He brought in her sister as well, and promptly rushed them off to boarding school. Once graduated, the girls were integrated into D.C. society, where Uncle James had since ascended to Secretary of State. President Pierce appointed Buchanan minister to the court of St. James in London and had Hal escort him. She was called Dear Miss Lane and given ambassador wife status by Queen Victoria herself. Vicky even tried to couple Harriet with Sir Fitzroy Kelly so she would move to London town. But Hal would instead espouse a banker from Mobtown, a.k.a. Baltimore, 12 years later. Uncle James inherited a White House in turmoil while acting First Lady Harriet committed herself to helping those less fortunate, particularly in Native American societies. Harriet always hired musicians and artists to entertain at White House events and was thought to be a relatively modern democratic queen. The presidential yacht was named after her, along with many Navy and Coast Guard cutters. In fact, the first naval shot in the Civil War came from the USRC Harriet Lane, which was seized by rebel forces and then grabbed back by the Yankees. And one of Abraham Lincoln's favorite tunes, Listen to the Mockingbird, was written in Harriet Lane's honor though you may recognize it as the Heckle and Jekyll theme song. Hal set fashion trends with her big hair and scandalous inaugural dress designed with a neckline two and a half inches lower than the mode of the day. She was the Jackie Kennedy of the mid-1800s. For large-scale happenings, Harriet strategically made seating arrangements with attending lawmakers as the nation was becoming ever more divided. She didn't want to ignite any fires between heated rivals. The Democratic Party itself was split into North and South factions, which probably explains how Lincoln was able to sweep up electoral votes, but not popular votes. By the end of Buchanan's four-year watch, Seven states had seceded from the Union. Uncle James breathed his last shortly after the war, as did Hal's children and spouse, before she too passed away just after the turn of the century. Harriet's art collection was willed to the Smithsonian and $400,000 donated to the Harriet Lane Home for Invalid Children at Baltimore's Johns Hopkins Hospital to honor her dead sons. To this day, it is one of the leading pediatric facilities in the world. Outliving one's children and companion has not been out of the ordinary for our first ladies leading up to Mary Ann Todd, who got a heavy dose of grief at age six when her mother died giving birth. 
She was brought up in Kentucky by a slave-owning banker who provided a luxurious life for Mary and her nine step-siblings. It was a challenge adjusting to her father's new wife and family, so it is no surprise that she flourished in the environment of Madame Mentel's finishing school. Mary developed a sharp personality, was well-versed in politics, and adored music, drama, dance, and mastering perfect French. Ooh la la. After graduation, she moved in with her sister in Springfield, Illinois. As a debutante, Mary had gone out a few times with Democratic legislator Stephen A. Douglas before settling on a lanky Whig lawyer named Abraham Lincoln. Over two decades, they had four sons, raised primarily by Mary. Only one lived past age 18. Even though Mary was raised a rich girl, she loved cooking for her family, including Abraham's favorite dish, oysters. The 1858 campaign for the U.S. Senate was the scene for the infamous Lincoln-Douglas debates that branded Abraham's position on slavery's expansion in newly formed states for his forthcoming ambitions. Lincoln lost the seat to the incumbent senator, but would be the boss of the nation not two years later. Movies always seem to portray Mary Todd Lincoln as crazy. However, analysts believe that her radical mood swings suggest that she may have been bipolar, which comes as no surprise as her ever-conflicted lifetime began in a border state between North and South. Many of her stepbrothers were Confederate soldiers, including one surgeon. Yet Mary stood firmly with Abraham's quest to mend the severed nation and preserve the Union. She was keen to attend hospitals, comfort wounded soldiers, and help them write letters to their families. She wasn't northern or southern, but rather was viewed as more of a western first lady in a very eastern D.C. society. Mary did not cavort like her predecessors and found it difficult getting partisans to play nice with one another. And her actions were contradictory to the rhetoric. Resources were constantly needed on the battlefield, but she still bought fine china, threw extravagant parties, and oversaw pricey HGTV-worthy makeovers of the White House, much to the chagrin of thrifty President Husband. Congress seemed cool with it because they gave Mary the money. It was defended as a way to boost confidence in the cause. Animosity loomed heavy with Lincoln's re-election, and in hindsight, it seems incredibly foolish to publish the president's social schedule five days after the Civil War was declared over, because anyone who could read knew Lincoln would be at Ford's Theater on April 14, 1865, to see Our American Cousin where Act 3 came with a bullet to the head when John Wilkes Booth brought the curtains down on the Great Emancipator. Abe was rushed to doctors, accompanied by a horror-stricken Mary, who had been right next to him and so hysterical that she needed to be separated from the wounded president. 
Mr. Lincoln was in a coma for about eight hours before Mary was brought back to kiss him adoringly until he was gone. She wore black ever after. Condolences poured in from around the globe as she fought Congress for a hefty pension of $3,000 a year, about $61,000 today. Her mental health declined from there, nearly inconsolable with the death of her son Thomas in 1871, she became paranoid and fearful for her only remaining son Robert, who had become a rising star in Chicago law. On one account, Mary was living in Florida and had a premonition that Roberts had fallen terribly ill. Bolting to the Windy City to help, she found him perfectly fine. But she wasn't going on and on about a poison-wielding assailant and a wandering Jew who had pickpocketed her, causing the former first lady to sew government bonds into her petticoats. When Robert committed her to the Bellevue Place Institution, she freaked out and attempted suicide by overdose. Luckily, local pharmacists had been notified to give her only placebos. Mary felt betrayed and spent her hospital stay writing letters implying that Robert put her away to gain control of her money, making the respected lawyer look like a real jerk. The two would be estranged for six years. In the meantime, her three-month paper campaign worked and Mary was released from the Bellevue Institution she decided to sightsee through Europe before the ravages of cataracts completely deteriorated her vision. Unfortunately, falling down became a more frequent occurrence for Mary, once from a stepladder, doing great damage to her spinal cord. Her final years were spent under the care of her sister Elizabeth in Springfield, until sustained complications brought on by a stroke reunited her with Abraham at age 63. Next time, we'll emerge from the embers of the Civil War with a First Lady meeting the Queen of Hawaii, a cross-eyed equestrian that required women to wear hats at the White House, the first to appear on film, and enjoy the modern marvels of running water, telephones, phonographs, and typewriters. <laughs>